I couldn't have been older than four. And I still remember the first person who ever condemned me. It was the middle of a weekday morning, and my mother and I had gone to the fabric outlet just off the interstate in my hometown, and I still remember it was a sunny day. I still remember how when you walk into the store just to the right, there were aisles of thread, spools upon spools, stacks, rainbow colors of thread, up one down, up down, up one row and down the other, racks upon racks, hundreds of colors. While mom was shopping, curiosity beckoned me to wander off and to go again up one aisle and down another, exploring. And as I went, I noticed that one of the spools of thread was a jar, and it was one of those one of those columns of spools that if you pulled one out, all the rest fell down into place. And I tried to push this one back in, but it popped out and onto the floor and came to arrest the toe of my shoe. I picked it up, and as I attempted to put it back, I realized that if I tried to do that and force it, it might just spill all the spools of thread all over the floor, and then I'd be in big trouble. So... I took the spool of thread and I put it in my jacket pocket and went to find my mother and just as I turned I looked up and there was a woman peering at me. I turned to find mom but this woman found her first. And then before I knew it she had arraigned both of us and she was accusing me of stealing the spool of thread. And with a cold scowl, she peered at me and she lowered the boom. You, little boy, are going to hell. <laughs> when you're four years old, that, that'll bum you out. <laughs> now, I still remember the way her face twisted and pursed to say those words. And, and though I can't prove it, I'm convinced I am convinced that this poor woman learned how to say things like this at her church. And even if I'm wrong about that in her case, you and I both know that's an educated guess. The longer I've been a pastor, the more people I encounter who've met this woman, been surveilled by her, arraigned by her, scolded, reprimanded by her, banished by her and her condemnation committee. It is a very large committee. Uh, very few seem to rotate off. All you have to do to be a member is memorize John 3.16, especially the word perish, and stop short of understanding John 3.16. John 3.16. Arguably the most famous verse in all of Scripture, a favorite verse of Christians of all ages, as well as those people with tickets in the end zone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. Luther called it the gospel in miniature, or we might say the gospel in a nutshell. 
because it so elegantly distills all the good news of Scripture into one powerful verse. John 3.16, the verse that distills the simplest way that this revolutionary revelation has come upon us, that our God is a loving God not only for particular people, but for all people. And how much does this God love us? God loves us so much. He sent his own son to us. To be born among us, to sojourn with us, to be with us all the way in life and in death. But, John 3.16, the verse that also holds that very difficult word, perish, that everyone who believes in him may not perish. The members of the condemnation committee think that if they know any word, they know that one. It's a very simple transaction. If you believe, you have everlasting life. If you don't believe, you perish. Why is this so hard? Why is this so difficult to understand? Believe, eternal life. No, no believe. You, little boy. And then there's the verse that follows John 3.16. The often overlooked John 3.17, where Jesus says, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. If there was any doubt about where the emphasis is in John 3.16, John 3.17 confirms it. Yes, our God is love. Yes, our God is saving love. God has not come to condemn us, but to save us. God has not sent Jesus to condemn, to damn, to doom, or to avenge, but to save. God's hand reaches out to us, always open. As we sink further, more deeply into the mire, God extends God's hand even closer to us. God's hand always reaching for us, open to us, that we may clasp God's hand and be saved. Now we've come to the heart of this preaching series on God's love. The discovery that God is not a punitive God, but a radically loving God is a revelation that changes lives, changes churches, changes communities. Indeed, it changes the whole world to know this. And indeed, it already has changed the world. And this is what John is teaching us. Richard Hayes says that when God sent Jesus, it was like introducing a giant magnetic field into the world. All human beings lined up around either the positive or the negative pole. But Jesus' coming determines everything, all truth and all reality henceforth. Another way of saying this is that God's saving love is here now. It's being realized now. It's already present in communities characterized, bound by, sustained by this saving love. We may know God's saving love is true wherever such love saves lives. It's one of the things that makes me proud of this church. We have our fair share of sinners. Each one of us, in fact, is, falls in that category. But we lean into the life-saving dimensions and dynamics of God's love so much that we've remained apart for a year now. A year. Ah, 
painful to say that. But isn't it because we know God's love is a saving love and that that should determine our own actions in relation to others, that they may be salvific in character? Have we not done this to save lives? 1st a year now, I have only been able to see through a glass darkly in terms of knowing who's been tuning into our worship services and who's been listening to my sermons and the sermons of my colleagues and our guests, preachers. Many of you who've been joining us across the year are members of our congregation. I suppose that's the majority. I have good reason to believe still many others are joining us from around the region and from around the country. Indeed, we have some who join us from around the world. Now, whoever you are, wherever you are, but especially if you are one of those who've been taught that God is out for you, or if you've ever been on the receiving end of the Condemnation Committee's generous humiliations, I want you to know from me, I want you to hear from me on behalf of this good congregation, and I want to make it plain. God is love. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Has anyone ever told you different? I want you to know at the very least that God loves you in spite of their condemnations. I want you to know that God loves you in spite of anything I might have said ignorantly, not even knowing that it might have had an effect on you to make you think otherwise. God loves you. And I would go even further to say that this is true, that God is a saving God and not a condemning God, and that God's hand is open to you whether you believe it or not. Even when you doubt, it's true. doesn't matter. God is God. What God has done is eternal. It's true whether we believe it or not. Jesus has reoriented the magnetic field forever. And even though our own lives may be spinning like a needle on a disheveled, shaken compass, our lives are destined nevertheless to finally point towards him in life and in death. I remember once being criticized for believing in universalism. Universalism is the belief that eventually everyone will be saved. Pastor, you mean to tell me you believe nobody's going to hell? And I recalled for them a conversation between the preacher Fleming Rutledge and the theologian George Hunsinger. Rutledge said, George and I were discussing universalism and, and all of the problems it poses, and he said, Universalism, we are permitted to hope for it. It makes a big difference in where we put the emphasis, doesn't it? In what direction we lean towards the word perish and you, little boy, 
or the word save. You are not condemned. I, I come to save you. And there's plenty of condemnation to go around, but do we not bring it upon ourselves? There is this very strange story in Numbers as the Israelites are making their way through the wilderness. They are complaining about manna. They're complaining about God's provision. And then it says God sends fiery snakes among them to bite them. And many died. So then the people remember how much they actually like living. And so they plead with Moses to pray to God to stop the serpents. And so Moses pleads with God, and God doesn't pull the serpents back, but God does give Moses instructions for a sign. Take a serpent and put it on a pole. And so Moses fashions a bronze serpent. He puts it on the pole, and God directs him to tell all the Israelites that when any of them are bitten, to look upon this pole and be healed. So Moses fashions it. He puts it on the pole. And whenever an Israelite is bitten by a snake, they may turn in their disorientation and be reoriented, focused, by lifting up their eyes upon this bronze serpent. And now Jesus says in John, For God so loved the world, he sent a new serpent, all flame, to be lifted up for us, to take our condemnation upon his own shoulders so that we may not perish but have everlasting life. That is God's destiny for us. And these are our instructions for now. No matter who we are, what we've been through, what we've done, it is my job today to tell you that Jesus has been lifted up for your sake. And this is because that God of love loves you and is determined to save you. These are God's plans for each one of us. I remember Jeremiah saying it too. What are the plans that I have for you? Plans for a future. Plans to give you a hope. This is your destiny. So whoever you are, Whatever you've heard, I'll give you some advice. When everyone from the condemnation committee offers you a generous humiliation, you have not only my permission, but I would say Jesus' permission, along with Jeremiah and the holy host of heaven, to say in reply, thanks but I have other plans.